everyone. I'm Sam. And I'm Sean. And welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back. Thank you all for joining us today. We've gained a good number of new listeners lately. So I just wanted to say welcome to everyone who's new here or just discovered us recently. And we are grateful for the support from everyone. I also want to say up front that a podcast called The Murder in My Family covered the case we'll be discussing today. It's not how I became familiar with it, but it did come up when I was researching the case and the host interviewed the victim's sister and brother-in-law. So I'll be using some of the tidbits they shared about the victim throughout the episode. Just wanted to give attribution right away. But as far as the murder itself, the podcast didn't necessarily share information that wasn't available elsewhere. Let's get into today's case. Paul Wilson was 60 years old at the time of his murder in 2019. Paul grew up in the town of Danvers, Massachusetts, which sits just about 30 minutes outside of Boston. Paul is characterized as being a friendly and outgoing person with a great sense of humor who didn't have a mean bone in his body. And it's tragic how frequently we hear about victims who everyone liked. And I suppose sometimes it could be families wanting to remember their loved one for their best traits, which is totally normal. But in this case, it truly seemed that there were no negative remarks to be made about Paul. He definitely didn't have any enemies. Yeah, I feel like with most of these cases that we talked about, when you go into the background of them, they've all been good people, which is just unfortunate that they've become victims, right? Yeah, it is unfortunate. And I mean, I'm sure that won't be the case with every single person we discuss going forward, but it's just been that so far that has been the case. Paul was an interesting man with diverse hobbies. He was a musician. He liked to ride his motorcycle. He was into technology and sports. And he was passionate about astronomy, owning several telescopes. And he actually enjoyed stargazing in the very park where he would later meet his demise. As I said, he was a musician and he attended the University of Massachusetts at Lowell where he studied music. Now, I don't know exactly how Paul came upon the career path he did, but he landed a role at the IT company, IBM, where he spent most of his career, 30 years to be exact, working as a software engineer. Paul loved good food and was known to seek out more off-the-beaten-path restaurants, so he could always be counted on for the best restaurant recommendations. Paul was clearly smart as well, and his sister even described his mind as being like an encyclopedia. Paul was a single man. He never married or had children, but there was no shortage of people in his life whom he cared for and who cared for Paul. He was especially close to this sister, who I've mentioned already, and his sister's husband. One remark Paul's sister made on the Murder in My Family podcast was how Paul was always engaged when he spoke with others. He really listened and made them feel special. Paul had a large number of friends, and it was evident when he passed how many of those friends considered Paul their best friend. And his personality really comes through in the photos of him. He had this large, authentic smile. Like I said, Paul grew up in Massachusetts, and at the time of his death, he lived in a condo in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which he had called home for about 24 years. 
Cambridge is a part of the Boston metropolitan area, and although it's just across the Charles River from Boston, it is its own city. It has a current population of about 117,000, and it's home to the Ivy League University, Harvard, as well as MIT or the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Cambridge is known as a safe city with a low crime rate, averaging only one homicide per year. In fact, in 2019, the year Paul was killed, his death was the only recorded homicide in Cambridge. On Wednesday, January 2nd, 2019, Paul took a blue bike to and from work. Blue Bike is a bicycle sharing system that operates in the Boston metropolitan area. It provides a nice alternative to some of the more traditional transportation methods in the U.S. According to the Middlesex District Attorney's Office, Paul headed home from work by arriving at Porter MBTA Station. He then rode a blue bike home and left it at a docking station near his house on Sherman Street. So he used a couple of methods of transportation that evening. This occurred around 6 p.m., and when Paul departed his home again that night, he left his wallet sitting in his kitchen. This was not unusual for Paul because he would typically use some form of mobile payment when he was out. He would use his Apple wallet on his phone or maybe even his watch to make purchases. So where was he going when he left his home? Obviously, it couldn't have been too far since he was on a bike, but... Well, now he was on foot when he left his condo. Yeah, so he took the bike from the train station to his home, parked it, and then he left on foot. Um, Yeah, I didn't clarify that. So we don't know with 100% certainty where he's going, but it's presumed that Paul was headed out to pick up dinner for the evening or to go eat dinner somewhere. And there is a Whole Foods market nearby that he frequented, And his sister feels certain that that's where he was headed that evening. Again, he didn't tell anyone he was going there, but considering the time and his typical behavior, this seems like a logical explanation. So you said he frequented this Whole Foods. Did he usually go there for dinner or just groceries or... Yeah, I think he was known to go there for dinner. And that's kind of why it made sense that he might have been going there that night. To get to Whole Foods, he would walk through Danahy Park, which was right by his home. And I think it's important to set the scene here and explain what Danahy Park is like. It is a sizable place. It's 50 acres that was built on what was previously a landfill. So when this park was developed in its place, the landfill's place, it really became kind of a community resource where people would gather to play sports like soccer or softball or simply just to take a bike ride or walk their dog. And Paul's sister did a good job of explaining this park a little bit more and what it would have been like that night. She said that the park path is wide and there are a good number of lights She estimates there is a lamppost every 50 feet or 15 meters. The park is mostly surrounded by homes, but there are nearby businesses too, such as the Whole Foods, where it's believed Paul was headed. This is not an isolated area by any means, but the direct perimeter around the park is mostly residential. She described the path as being well-traveled, and it wouldn't 
necessarily have been as busy on January 2nd as it would have been on a warmer day, but you would expect other people to be coming and going, especially around this time, which is around dinner time or a time where you'd expect people to be coming home from work. But it was quite a cold night. The temperature was somewhere around 20 to 25 degrees Fahrenheit or negative six to negative four degrees Celsius. But again, it wasn't unusual for Paul to go pick up dinner in this kind of weather. At 6.48 p.m., there was a call placed to 911 from an individual who stated there was an unresponsive man lying on the ground in Danahee Park. Paul was found on the other side of the park from where he entered, so he made it quite a distance from his home before anything happened to him, and he was on the path that is adjacent to New Street. New Street is also the street where Whole Foods is located on the other side, Paul was underneath a streetlight, which was operable and on at the time that he was killed. In addition to being under the streetlight, he was next to a parking lot used by people going to the park. So he was by an entrance. So the spot that he was killed was pretty much in plain sight of presumably a a bunch of people. If it was right next to a parking lot under a streetlight. In the park. In the park, right. By a street where even people driving by, I believe, could have seen something happen. Yeah. This location was surprising at first glance. And I mean, I can't imagine what the person who came upon him was thinking. That had to be shocking and confusing, but also just horrifying. Paul was not dead on arrival, but he was unconscious. So when first responders got to the scene, they quickly transported him to a local hospital. But sadly, he was pronounced dead several hours later between 10 and 11 p.m. His cause of death was later determined to be multiple blunt force injuries to the top of his head. Now, what I haven't explained about Paul yet is that he was an exceedingly tall person. He stood at an anomalous height of six feet, six inches, and he weighed more than 200 pounds. He's not who you would expect to be a victim of a crime like this. So we have this totality of unusual facts about this case that make you question, why Paul? He's not a likely victim. He doesn't seem like the kind of person if you were out and you wanted to hurt someone, you would pick because there's a chance if your plan backfires and if Paul were able to defend himself, you could become the victim. So it's not to say that people of his size can't be victims of crime. It's just not as common, especially when we're talking about potentially a random crime. It's really baffling why Paul? And you kind of ask yourself, how did this play out? It seemed that he must have been hit in the head from behind and incapacitated or just completely taken by surprise. But beyond this, Dannenhe Park is not the kind of park where people commonly get assaulted or mugged or anything of that nature. In fact, no violent crimes were reported in this park for nearly a decade preceding Paul's murder when an aggravated assault took place. But even if this were a slightly less safe area, the timing being just before 7 p.m. where there could be witnesses around and his physical location 
being under a streetlight and next to a parking lot, all of this just seems risky if you're the perpetrator because there's no guarantee that there won't be a witness. So you said he got hit on the top of the head or was it the back of the head? Most of the blunt force injuries were to the top of his head, but I believe there were some to the back as well. Okay. But we don't know like the, I guess the timeline of the blunt force trauma, whether it was top of the head first or back of the head. Okay. I don't know on that. Yeah. I mean, either way, like I guess depending on what weapon you're using, him standing at six foot six, it's that's a long ways up there to hit him on the head, right? I mean, yeah, I guess, yeah. I mean unless you're using a bat, yeah, it seems crazy. I, it feels like the person who did it also would have had to have been pretty tall. Yes, because even if you have something like a bat, I still think you would have to be pretty tall to get on the top of his head to hit him. Yeah, unless he got hit in the back of the head first and then he fell down and then they hit him on the top of the head or something like that, right? Yeah. Or if he was squatting down to tie a shoe or whatever. Yeah. Th- yeah, then you could get him on the top of the head. That's an interesting possibility. If he were already squatted down, though, I mean, I don't know why he would be squatted down besides to tie his shoe, then he could have been in a vulnerable state. And this would actually make more sense why he had the injuries to the top of his head. Otherwise... Otherwise, I mean, you have to have someone who does, who's either super tall as well, or they have a long object to hit him with. Yeah. Then again, if he's squatted down for a, a short duration of time, that person would have had to had to been there waiting and ready. Right. right? Like right and on his tail. Yeah. 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 And we can talk about that later, the potential of someone following him. But that's a good point, too. If he were bent down, this person would have either been right behind him or they would have had to run up to catch up with him and strike him. Back to the park for a moment. I I read online that some people in the community don't feel like it's the safest area, but others said it's perfectly safe. And I read many comments from people uh, discussing Cambridge in general who say they've never had safety concerns. So I really think it's somewhat of a subjective matter. Anytime you're in a city and it comes down to kind of a person's tolerance and life experiences. But I do think the fact that nothing of this nature occurred in Danahy Park for nearly a decade prior to Paul's murder is telling. Paul would even go stargazing at 2 a.m. in the park. So despite how anyone else feels, we at least know that Paul clearly felt safe. Yeah, and I don't think he would have a reason to feel threatened. First of all, he's he's a man, and second of all, he's a very imposing figure, being six six and two hundred plus pounds, right? So, yeah, like he might be the type to make other people feel unsafe, even though we know Paul was not, you know, anyone to be scared of, Right. right? Like as a woman, men do have certain privileges being out alone at night that women don't have. It's reality. And I think I would never go stargazing in a city park like this at 2 a.m. But considering, again, that Paul would, I think it speaks to how he felt safe there and probably didn't have any concerns that anything even close to what happened to him would ever occur. Yeah, especially at 6 p.m. on a weekday night. Yeah. Yeah. 
One resident told CBS News that a lot of park goers stopped going to the side of the park where Paul was killed because it gets really dark. And the resident said they'd been pleading with the city of Cambridge for better lighting in the park. And I think this could particularly be an irritating situation where it gets darker earlier, right? In January and you want to take your dog to the park after work or something or walk your dog or even just go on a walk by yourself. You really do want adequate lighting. So although there was lighting, it sounds like some residents questioned its adequacy. Something unfortunate about Danahee Park is that there are no cameras. Cameras could have been instrumental in solving a case like this, or at least it may have generated leads. Although the park doesn't have cameras, police requested video footage from homes and private businesses with cameras in the surrounding neighborhoods. The offender had to go somewhere after killing Paul. The last camera footage captured of Paul was near a Montessori school, which was near where Paul entered Danahee Park. There were no additional leads that resulted from the view of video footage. So we really just have when the last moments captured are just when he entered the park, which is not that helpful. So this must have happened when he was on the way to where, wherever he was going, right? It, we were thinking he may have been going to Whole Foods and I'm sure they had cameras, right? And they surely checked that to see if he entered the, the Whole Foods. Yes, this was when they established that this was when he got to the other side of the park. He did not make it yet to Whole Foods. Okay, so he, yeah, so he was still on his way to wherever he was going, unless he was just taking a walk. Yes. I mean, as far as we know, he didn't go anywhere outside of the park before he was found. There was blood discovered near Paul's body, but investigators learned through forensic testing that this was animal blood. And the DNA tested from the scene, disappointingly, only belonged to Paul. There was also a baseball bat found nearby that was tested, but nothing came back to connect the bat to Paul's murder, so police ruled it out as being the murder weapon. It's also possible that it was ruled out as being involved based on what the injuries to Paul's head looked like. I couldn't find specific details on what the injuries were like, just that he suffered multiple blunt force injuries to the head, And it sounded like a very gruesome beating. I mean, since it was enough to kill him, that's probably to be expected. We're talking about a park here. So to me, it didn't seem that weird for a random baseball bat to be in the general vicinity. Additionally, according to CBS, there was a nearby area of interest that at one point was even called a second crime scene where train tracks were swabbed and some items of interest were collected as evidence, although it seems as though those items were not of value. Something that's often pointed out in articles about the case is how Paul was dressed. I'm assuming because if someone saw something, they might remember what he was wearing because he was wearing shorts, a winter hat, coat, and gloves. So the shorts seemed a little bit odd to me initially since it was quite cold that night, but his sister and others explained that this was not abnormal for Paul. He was the kind of guy who always wore shorts regardless of the weather, 
I think he was just more comfortable in shorts. And this was something everybody who knew Paul was already aware of. But you can see how that would be memorable, right? I know when I've been out and it's extremely cold and I see someone in shorts or a t-shirt, I always wondered to myself, how are they not freezing? And if you combine the shorts with the fact that he was super tall, he probably stood out on some level. I know I would notice someone like that. Notably, Paul was found with his Apple Watch on his wrist and his phone in his pocket. Because of this, investigators do not believe robbery was the motive, which also defies logic. Because initially, when I first heard about this case, I wondered if this were a robbery gone wrong. And I suppose it could have been because most people carry a wallet and maybe this person found he didn't have a wallet on him and didn't want to steal the Apple Watch or phone out of fear that those items could be traced too easily, which is probably true. And these items wouldn't provide immediate value like cash would. Yeah, this just seems so far to go for a petty robbery of a wallet. Oh, right. Yeah. And the other thing is along those lines, like muggers don't usually want to kill their target. That's a much more serious crime than stealing from someone. I mean, it's possible this person didn't know he would die as a result of the way they attacked him, but it was a brutal beating, so they had to have an idea that it could. Typically, the muggers would present a weapon or something and just say, give me your wallet and give you know, just give me whatever money you have. Without killing the person, right? Right. That It's not typically going to go this far. Yeah. And again, why mug a large man under a street lamp yeah. at dinner yeah. time by an entrance to the park? And even the dumbest of criminals would likely not target someone like Paul. So it doesn't appear that robbery can be entirely ruled out as the motive here, but it does fall more toward the bottom of the likely theories. The general consensus in this case is that this was a purely random attack. Paul's sister believes that the person responsible set out that day to hurt someone and that Paul was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. No one believes that someone who knew Paul targeted him that day. Paul's background was reviewed extensively by law enforcement, and it turned out Paul was exactly who he said he was. He wasn't hiding anything. They didn't uncover any shady activities he was involved in or anyone who had a grudge against him. So I don't think there's any evidence that supports this being a targeted attack. And if someone did want to hurt Paul, meaning someone who is in his life, you wonder why they would pick this specific location and time. Something interesting about this park is that I'd imagined someone could have been lying in wait, maybe hiding away in some trees or bushes and then popping out when they see someone they want to target, but it doesn't appear to be that kind of park, at least not in the area he was found. There are trees for sure that I'm sure someone could have hidden behind in the dark, but it doesn't look like thick brush or a heavily wooded area or anything where someone could just easily hide. On Google Earth, you can't actually look inside the park. You can only get the street view from 
around the park, meaning I wasn't able to see from the ground exactly what Paul's path would have looked like, but I can see it from a satellite view from above. So that is what I've gathered about the path he took that night. What seems more plausible, and we've talked about this a bit, is that someone saw him and followed behind him. I wonder if maybe the attacker had been following him since he entered the park or shortly after entering. And the reason they attacked when he got to the other side of the park was that they realized it was now or never, as horrible as that sounds, if they picked him as their victim. Paul's sister thinks that whatever hit him in the head must have just pushed him down or knocked him down. And as you said, Sean, maybe he was already bent down and the person had an upper hand because one, they came from behind, but two, he was in a lower position. As far as we know, there's been little information provided by witnesses, but details could be held back for the sake of the investigation. Regardless, Paul's family and investigators have asked the public for tips. Maybe someone saw something they didn't know was significant. Almost two years after Paul's murder, Middlesex County District Attorney Marion Ryan told Boston 25 News, quote, We have since that time of the crime done an enormous amount of work on the case, gathering forensic evidence, interviewing witnesses, and we have not been able to develop enough evidence to make an arrest. We urge people to come forward with anything you might have noticed. What people don't understand is, given the information we already have, that one little piece they have may be the last piece that we need to get some resolution, end quote. I find that comment interesting. She's almost implying that although they've never named a suspect in Paul's murder, they might have one, that they just don't have quite enough evidence to tie to the crime, and they need one additional lead to secure an arrest. Yeah, that's always interesting to me when it seems like they may have a suspect and they're still looking for additional information. Like, why not? Why couldn't you release? I'm sure there's legal issues, but why couldn't you release that name? And someone could see that name and be like, oh, I have this piece of information to offer that could help incriminate them. Yeah, about that specific person. That's what worries me is like, maybe they don't have a suspect, but just the way she made that statement made it kind of sound like we just need one or two more pieces of information to secure an arrest. But to your point, by withholding a potential suspect, I don't I don't necessarily see how it helps unless they don't feel confident that that's their person because then, yeah, you you probably don't want to put their name out there. Yeah. They're just a person of interest. Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, like if they put that name out there, someone who could have, I don't know, some sort of grudge against that person could, you know, try to get them incriminated for something they have nothing to do with, right? Yeah, and it's just, it could be really damaging to that person. I mean, think about all the cases we've covered so far. I know it hasn't been that many, but quite a few. It's rare for us to talk about an instance where someone actually is named publicly as a suspect. So because if you get named as a suspect in a murder and then it turns out you have nothing to do with it, that's still going to show up 
anytime somebody searches your name and it could be really damaging yeah. to that person. So I don't know in this case. I really don't know. And I wonder, okay, if they did have a suspect, like how did they get to that point? It sounds like there weren't many witnesses in this case. So I don't know. Maybe it was camera footage from another area where they saw someone acting suspiciously and they think they know who that person is, but how would they find out who that person is, right? There is a digital investigation technique that we've talked about in a couple of prior episodes called geofencing, which is reverse location searching. According to nolo.com, a geofence is the term coined to describe the search of a historical location database to pinpoint all users whose devices were in a specific location at a certain time. So normally when we hear about a victim or suspect's location data being tracked, they start with a specific person and then track down their location, but this works the other way around. You start with a location and then work backwards to identify people who are within that location. It could potentially track down other people who were in the area who saw something and haven't come forward, or possibly even the killer. Based on what Paul's brother-in-law shared with the Murder in My Family podcast, this technique has already been exhausted in this case, and it sounded like this tactic didn't really provide any promising leads. Since Paul frequented the park, there is a possibility that someone who also frequented the park could have targeted him for one reason or another. Otherwise, what we're left with is that this was a purely random attack, which is shocking, especially for a city that averages one homicide per year with a population of, uh, I think it was about 117,000. This makes this attack even rarer because most people who are murdered are murdered by someone they know. And I found this death to be so unusual that I thought to myself, if something fell to the sky and hit him in the head and caused his death, I could believe that at this point. As crazy as that sounds, but I mean, he was hit multiple times in the head. So clearly that was not the case. But I wonder what the rest of Paul's body looked like. Did the person only hit his head? It sounded like it was only his head. But I suppose that could be a really key piece of holdback evidence. If you make it sound like he were o- he's only hit in the head, but he's actually hit other places on his body, well, the only person who would know that would be the killer. And you also wonder, what was the person hitting him with? This could go to premeditation. Did the killer leave their home that night or wherever they came from with something that could be used to kill someone? Or did they use an object they happen to have on hand for non-nefarious reasons? Yeah, I don't know what you would have just on you to do this type of crime. Like you mentioned that bat that was found nearby that got ruled out fairly quickly within a few months or something. It's not like someone's just carrying a weapon with them that could be used to kill someone. Just at all times. I mean, they were in a park. I don't know. Maybe they found a thick branch that was nearby or something. I don't know. Yeah, like a really thick branch. That would be the only thing just 
available right. unless they found like a baseball bat at the park. Yeah, I don't really know what you could use that would just be on your person on a random night walking through the park. There's nothing that really comes straight to mind, especially if we think that this might have been an elongated object that makes it even less likely that this would be something you would just have on you. So, I mean, maybe the person truly did go out that night with an object to carry this out. From what has been reported, there were no signs of a struggle. So like I mentioned before, it seems that someone did something to incapacitate him pretty quickly so he couldn't fight back. You can see how this is a frustrating case. We don't know if someone spoke to Paul and started an interaction with him, got his guard down, and then attacked him. I also wondered if someone said something to Paul to try to start a fight. Maybe Paul responded and the attack went from there. That's kind of what I was thinking. Like maybe there was some sort of, maybe they weren't trying to instigate something, but there was some sort of miscommunication or something. And, and you know, that person took it the wrong way and they just snapped. I don't, yeah. It's kind of where I was thinking because it doesn't really seem like you were saying Paul's Paul's a great guy great guy has all these friends doesn't he's a nice guy yeah uh, it doesn't really seem like he would have enemies that would carry out this premeditated murder no and i think that's a good point his sister did say something along the lines of did paul give somebody some lip but He's also just described as like the nicest guy. He really doesn't sound like the kind of person to get into an altercation with anyone under any circumstance. But to your point, what if he said something to someone that for some reason, it could have been anything, Took was the just wrong way. yeah, completely taken the wrong way. You get the wrong person. You never know what's going through someone's mind. And someone who would carry out something like they did to Paul, I, I just, we can't get into their mindset. We just can't. Paul's sister stated that he was the last person she would have ever expected this kind of violence to be inflicted upon. There's also the question of, is this a serial offender? It seems like someone who would commit such a random murder might attack again. Investigators looked into incidents that were similar to this that occurred in nearby communities, but none of those crimes were linked to Paul's murder. But I'm not sure how they would be anyway. Even if the crimes were nearly identical, how do you connect them with certainty without knowing who committed them? And how similar could they have been with the murder rate being so low in Cambridge? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, Cambridge, there was only one homicide that year, that year and it was Paul. Him. Yeah. 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 If it was a serial offender, it'd have to be outside of Cambridge. Outside of Cambridge, yes. I think, and it's possible they reviewed instances where people maybe were randomly attacked or assaulted, but they then survived the incident. This had to have been so unsettling for the community that was, you know, presumably an extremely safe place. And now they have this homicide on their hands. Yeah. And people who frequented that park right. can't imagine going back after that incident. I mean, 
at a certain point, you have to get back to normalcy, but it would just be really unsettling. I feel like I'd always be looking over my shoulder. Paul's family and friends are left feeling heartbroken and devastated after four years without him. When asked if she feels hope that the case will be solved on the Murder in My Family podcast, Paul's sister said something really poignant. She explained that she used to have hope, but she has since changed her outlook to the idea that circumstances may change. She believes someone has to talk or else the case will never be solved because of how thorough of an investigation was conducted and the complete lack of evidence. The killer left no DNA. There were no witnesses, as far as we know, no camera footage, no murder weapon, nothing. So she believes someone needs to talk and that is imperative to resolving this case it's possible that the person who did this told other people about it. There could be people out there who know exactly what happened to Paul and haven't shared that. I've been wanting to cover Paul's murder since we started the podcast, but I kept hoping that there would be an arrest made since it it's somewhat of a more recent case. Definitely not our most recent we've covered, but when I realized there have been no recent updates, I felt especially compelled to cover it. Paul's family has put up a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest and indictment in this case. If you have information related to the murder of Paul Wilson, please call Massachusetts State Police assigned to the Middlesex District Attorney's Office at 781-897-6600, or you can call the Cambridge Police at 617-349-3121. I'm interested to hear what others think in this case. It would be interesting if people who are familiar with this area listened to this episode and gave us their perspective. This is one of the most baffling cases we've covered and one of the most frustrating as well. Thank you all for tuning in today. That's all for now, but we will be back next week with a new case. Bye. Bye.